Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today's focus is on European markets. The latest Purchasing Managing Indexes survey showed that Eurozone business activity declined far more than expected in August, while some inflationary pressures returned. Joining us to unpack the factors influencing this and more is Fidelity Europe Fund Portfolio Manager Matt Siddle. Matt and host Pamela Ritchie discuss the macroeconomic landscape, including the long-lasting impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, stimulus measures, and inflation. Matt emphasizes the wide valuation gaps in various sectors, particularly in consumer staples, and highlights opportunities in mid-cap stocks. Speaking on his investment approach, Matt mentions that his strategy is not purely value or growth-oriented, but instead seeks companies with a good mix of quality and attractive valuations. He says that he is currently excited about finding undervalued businesses in this market environment. Matt also touches on the importance of pricing power for businesses in managing costs and maintaining profitability, unpacks the factors influencing the energy sector, sharing how energy prices relate to cost inflation, and notes some attractive opportunities in banks due to rising interest rates. This podcast was recorded on August 24th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, Matt. Great to see you again. How are you? I am very well. Thank you, Pamela. I hope you're well. Yes, I'm well. I'm well. Great to have a chance to to speak here today. There's a lot of macro. We're going to ask you about that macro and how it affects what you're doing and how you are traversing and strategizing. But let's just get to your strategy first, if you don't mind. Your approach, how, how does it differentiate? Take us through your style. Yeah, so uh, the way that I look at uh, at investing is focused very much on, on two factors, um, being firstly the, the quality of the business that you're investing in, um, you know, we we have a preference for finding you know good quality businesses that have have strong longer term fundamentals, but we very much marry that with a valuation discipline uh, as well. So, you know, the strategy isn't designed to buy the highest quality growth, fastest growth businesses out there, irrespective of price. So it, it's not a sort of pure quality growth strategy, what we're looking to do is find those good quality businesses which are um, you know, maybe out of favor where valuations are unusually cheap, unusually attractive, and where you've got a good mixture of both good quality and attractive valuations. That's, that's where we're focused. So do we, do we, uh, we don't want to put things in buckets, but I mean, is it more of a value approach or is it not? Is there, is there a subtlety to that? No, so um, you know, a, yeah, there is a very clear value bias. It would differ from a pure deep value approach in that it, it doesn't have a big bias towards the traditional value sectors, which are highly volatile, low return, low quality businesses. So, you know, you might think of, say, banks, 
or energy as traditional value sectors, those are generally not high quality businesses. And therefore, you know, I don't say I'll never invest in, in banks or, or, or energy companies, but the preference, the, the, the aim is to find good quality businesses which are, are attractively valued, not just the lowest PE or the lowest price to book. So, you know, there's a, a, a bit of a, a, a combination going on. It's not pure deep value and it's not pure quality growth. It's looking for the companies which have got that mixture, both good quality and attractive valuation. Okay, fantastic. I look forward to sort of teasing that out and getting you to give us, you know, a few examples of, of the types of things that you find interesting. Let's hit the macro head on because this the, the way you invest, how that differentiates um, your style ultimately, has also had to build upon, as every investor has, a really crazy time for, of COVID, of watching the market fall off an absolute cliff. Then, as we all know, the stimulus taps were turned on and we've been going through the mopping up over the course of the last year as interest rates have been rising. Um, so we're, we're seeing some of that liquidity come out enter what you're trying to do and, and where valuations are. T take us through recent history and where you sort of feel you've, you've come to at this point. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, the, um, uh, I think you highlighted some of the unusual events uh, which have driven the market. Um, I don't think anybody's seen a, uh, a, a global lockdown and, uh, and pandemic before and, and um, you know, the huge stimulus. Um, and, and then obviously the war in Europe, um, and, and they each had different impacts. So, you know, if you were to look at the, the first stage, the lockdown basically led to, um, you know, the, the, the most expensive companies generally outperformed and, and generally valuation got, got wider and wider and wider. That, that process had started already in, in maybe 2016. Um, and then the valuation gaps just reached, you know, pretty much record levels, just as high as, as in 2000, uh, towards the top of the tech bubble. On some measures, e even wider valuation gaps than, than, than that bubble. And that, that went on until late 2020. Then you had the vaccine and the huge stimulus. And what that led to was a big risk on rally. So where initially after the, um, after the pandemic, it was, you know, um, you know, a thematic around rapid growth, particularly digital online growth, uh, and tech doing extremely well because we were all locked down. We were using tech a lot more. Suddenly, there was a vaccine and stimulus, and that led to a reawakening of the global economy, and it led to quite a big rally in just basically any cyclical um, uh, and, and quite a big risk on market. Then, obviously, you, you had the, the war in Russia uh, and, and the spike in inflation, um, and that led to quite a different market because yields suddenly started shooting upwards. Inflation started shooting upwards, a lot of pressure on the uh, consumer in particular, uh, and that led to some sectors being under pressure because the consumer was in a squeeze, particularly consumer discretionary, but some cyclical sectors like energy doing extremely well because commodity prices were suddenly jacked up by, by the war and, and the imbalance in supply demand. So, you know, it's been a, a tremendously unusual uh, three-year period where we've been left at the end of all of that 
is that valuation gaps are still very, very wide compared to history. So within not just banks versus tech, right? Within tech, if you were to look between one software business and another software business or within cap goods between one engineering business and another engineering business or in consumer staples between one staple and another brand, the valuation gaps are unusually wide. So, I mean, what what accounts for that if they're both good companies for us? Let's let's get into this sort of why why one and not the other if if there are, you know, somewhat comparable competitors, essentially. I I think there's been... um, and, and I can probably talk better to a European market than the US market. Yeah. Um, but there's a limited number of rapid growth companies in Europe. There's probably a bigger number in the US, but there's a, 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 a limited number of really rapidly growing companies in Europe. And those that are rapidly growing have seen a crowding in of investors chasing after that growth. And that has led to multiples expanding. Uh, And that has been combined in Europe, in particular, with a chase towards companies which have got good ESG characteristics. And those companies that have got good ESG characteristics have generally been put on much higher multiples than companies where the ESG characteristics are average or questionable. So, you know, those I think are, and and what that has led to, both of these factors, is that flows have moved in that direction. Because generally, industry flows move towards the things that have performed well over the last three to five years. Because a lot of people screening looks, well, what's performed well over the last three to five years? These are the funds, right? Because, uh, you know, you, you want funds that have outperformed. Um, and equally, particularly in Europe, um, distributors are looking to put their clients into better ESG products. And both of those have pushed money flows towards those higher growth, better ESG areas that have performed well over the last sort of three to five years. And it's just sort of extended that trend and, and widened those valuation gaps. Yeah, it's fascinating. So let's let's sort of just discuss some of the pieces, uh, the story of of inflation. How how is it going? I mean, I was just listening to some commentary a couple of minutes ago on the job that Christine Lagarde, of course, uh, Madame Lagarde, will have ahead of her. It, it may be trickier. How how is inflation, latest PMI included? How's the battle going? I think inflation is a complex situation here because the central bankers will certainly not feel that they have defeated inflation, not with um, core inflation still running in Europe at 6 or 7% um, and um, wages growing at the pace they are and, and that feeding quite clearly into service inflation, which, which is a large part of the, the consumer basket. Um, however, if you were to look at what drove the inflation in the first place, the start of the inflation spike, that was the supply chain's and the commodity imbalances of supply and demand, which led to producer price inflation spiking to like record levels. So I can't remember the exact stats, but something like German PPI went up to about plus 50% year on year, which was the highest it had ever been post the Second World War. That is now running negative. Okay. So German PPI and PPI in quite a lot of countries has gone from extremely high to now negative year on year. 
And that means that there's definitely a reduction in inflation pressures. But because labor and because services is such a big part of the basket, it means that the central bankers still aren't 100% comfortable because while the initial impact was transitory, right? The, the impact on the labor market might turn out to be prolonged. And that's why I think it's quite a difficult point at the moment to why it's tricky to work out exactly what they're going to say at Jackson Hole and exactly how many more rate rises we're going to see. But it's clear we're, we're closer to the end of this than, than the start of it. But whether we're at the end or whether we still need to keep going for a bit on rate hikes and a bit more inflation, that's not so sure yet. So so the companies, for instance, that you're looking at that fit the description that are good businesses, you know, they're they've they've obviously established what they need to do in a in a land of rising capital costs. That's that's where we are. Um when when we have these sort of moments of it's hard to know whether the data coming in is good or bad sometimes, you know, it, it's uh Depending on where it is, it could mean the end of rate cuts, and that could be good. But in these moments of data dependency releases, um, do you find the valuations just get more and more attractive because there is sort of some confusion about where this is going? Like, speak speak to a bit more on on where the valuations settle out as 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 some of this. There's still a bit of a haze, isn't there? Yeah. So, look, I mean, as I said earlier, valuation gaps within each sector are unusually wide. And that, to me, is what creates the opportunity for for my strategy, because it's not simply that energy and banks are really cheap. It's that as you look at each sector, you can find some cheap companies and some really expensive companies. And what what the strategy has done is focus on finding those businesses which are solid businesses in attractive areas where valuations are unusually cheap and unusually attractive. Um, and you can find plenty of those across a range of different sectors, um, including sectors which aren't especially economically sensitive. So, for example, in consumer staples, there are some exciting, sexy growth stocks which are on 30 or 40 times, 50 times even earnings. But equally, there are some very strong brands and businesses which maybe are only growing at mid-single digit instead of 10% but they're trading on 12 or 14 or 15 times earnings. And, and what you're getting is you know, a high single-digit free cash flow yield that is growing at mid-single-digit rates with limited economic risk. And that, to me, seems like a very attractive investment. And you know, those valuations are pretty much the cheapest they've been for over a decade. So you, you can find some, some interesting areas. Let's go into some of the other sectors. I mean, so, I mean, you're talking a little bit about consumer discretionary, certainly. Um, luxury has been the story that everyone followed out of the China reopening, and that sort of has its own story attached to it and, and maybe its own consequences because the China reopening maybe isn't what everyone hoped. Um, what about consumer discretionary in, in other areas across Europe? Yeah, so there's been a big divergence between luxury, where everybody has wanted to play that China reopening, and the valuations got very expensive, and stocks have performed very well. Um, you know, the, the largest company in Europe is a luxury business. It's you know it, that didn't used to be the case, but but yeah, the most valuable companies in in Europe are now luxury goods businesses. Um, and what what we've seen is that 
just recently, because the China reopening hasn't maybe been quite as strong as people hoped, and because the US has started to slow down in terms of luxury spend, those businesses which were outperforming and doing extremely well have kind of stabilized in, in relative performance. So they've had a little bit of a pullback. You wouldn't say they've cracked or they've massively underperformed, but they've just had a little bit of a pullback and they're not in a very clear uptrend and, and anymore. Um, and the markets, I guess, trying to work out whether this slowdown in, in the US is a prolonged one um, or whether the China reopening is simply a delay or just isn't going to come through as fast as people hoped. But, but the stocks are still on quite punchy multiples um, uh, because people still view them as long-term growth stocks. Whereas if you were to look at quite large other parts of consumer discretionary, everybody thinks that the average consumer is under real pressure. And that's true to some extent, definitely. Um, but it means that the earnings estimates have been cut quite hard and that the multiples are really quite cheap. And you can find some very, very um, cheap businesses and, and yes, it is true that the consumer is under pressure in Europe and, and the UK, et cetera. But for example, with inflation coming down, uh, as it has started to do, and with wage growth accelerating, we've now seen the, the first period for some time where real wage growth is faster than inflation uh, in the UK, for example. So that pressure on consumer budgets is starting to get better at the same time as the demand in some of the luxury areas is starting to come off. So, you know, while luxury has been very, very strong up till now, it may be that the market may change. And, and you know, the bigger opportunity I see is in some of the very cheap consumer discretionary areas where fundamentals were under pressure, but are now starting to improve. Mm. So they've done, for instance, have they done efficiencies, cost savings that, that were done through COVID and they've kind of come out the other side, but but haven't been recognized on some level. Is that, I mean, is that sort of... Yeah, yeah I mean, they, they, quite a lot of these stocks had a, a very strong 12-month period after COVID because of the stimulus. Right. Then because of the war... Um, they had quite a tough 12-month period, um, but they are now putting through the cost savings as a result of that tough 12-month period. At the same time, the consumer has got slightly more money in their pocket because wages are going up and because the energy bills, as I'm sure you're aware, um, you know, energy gas prices, natural gas prices in Europe utterly spiked last year. They went up like tenfold. And now they are down about 80, 90 percent from the peak. So that pressure on your gas bill, your electricity bill is going to be less this winter than it was last winter. So with higher wages and, and less pressure on your your heating and your electricity bills, there's a bit more money in people's pockets. Um, this is a question about sort of cap size and, and whether maybe you're agnostic one way or the other. But are you seeing opportunities when it comes to small, mid or large caps? Where, where does that um, fit? So, so generally, I am agnostic. I don't really mind. Um, however, I think it's fair to say that if you were to look at the European market at the moment, most of the 10 biggest companies are very expensive growth companies. And quite a lot of the mid caps are being ignored and trade on unusually cheap multiples. There are plenty of businesses out there 
but because of the fears and because people are more excited by you know the, the big growth stocks, they're trading on similar multiples to where they did in the financial crisis in 2008 or the bottom of the bear market in 2003. You know, uh, and you've got businesses with, which are on very close to you know record low valuations or similar to to what you saw in the GFC 2003 with strong balance sheets. Um, just because they're being overlooked for, for, for other ideas. And, and that's where I see the bigger opportunity. So right at the moment, I find more mid-cap opportunity than, than in the mega cap. Okay, great. Uh, taking a look at earnings, um, as you know, lots of earnings coming out on this side of the pond. It's been an interesting earnings uh, story through this year. This question is, do you expect company earnings in the US and Europe to have sort of that pricing power given the high valuations. Yeah, where, where does the pricing power story come in for companies, probably on both sides of the pond, but particularly in Europe? Do they still have it? Yeah, look, so pricing power is an extremely important uh, factor, particularly when there's a lot of cost inflation. Because if you can't put your prices up and you've got cost inflation, your margins are going to get squeezed. Right? When cost inflation is less, Pricing power still matters. Uh, it's still a very good thing to have, but it's not quite as important as when you've got a lot of cost pressure as well. Um, so, uh, and it is, uh, you know, pricing power is a signal of uh, the quality of the business. And so obviously it is something that I think about and analyze and, and would rather have companies with, with strong pricing power. Um, Right now, I think a lot of companies have been surprised at how much pricing power they've got and how low the elasticity of demand has been for some products. Uh, and that's been, you know, I've, I've spoken to plenty of company managements who have said that's been a really interesting learning that, you know, we put prices up, we expected, you know, a 3% or a 5% volume hit. And actually, it was only a 1% volume hit. And, you know, that, that's taught us something. So, you know, it is a very important factor. However, it is worth noting that orders are falling in a lot of the manufacturing side of the economy. Inventories are high. And right. even if you've got pricing power, if volumes fall fast enough, your earnings can still go down even if you've got pricing power. So pricing power isn't a complete shield against uh, a recession. It's very helpful, but it doesn't 100% protect your earnings. It doesn't mean that your earnings can't fall. It just means that they're likely to be better protected. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and uh, another question, just kind of getting back to the energy story. Um, and, it, and it was such a massive story for literally everyone across across Europe last year. So the question is, how much does energy drive your portfolio? In terms of investments, how, how do you look at energy? So um, energy as a sector is about 5% of the European market. Uh, and we are you know, broadly in line with that. Um, we were slightly overweight. Um, the stocks performed very well um, through last year and into the start of this year. So we took a little bit of profit. We're slightly underweight now. Um, the bigger part, the bigger impact of the portfolio is energy as an input cost for lots of other businesses. 
because while energy sector is only 5% of the market, the energy as an input cost affects a lot of the market. Um, and there's quite a lot of companies where you've had a spike in energy prices where those energy prices are now coming down. And that means that cost inflation is falling and that is quite helpful for rebuilding your margins. Uh, and particularly for some companies where they were putting prices up, but they could only do it with a bit of a lag. As you get the benefit of those lagged price increases and your energy bills are coming down, that can actually be really helpful for profitability. And that maybe fits into some of those consumer staples companies that we were uh, we were talking about earlier, where some of those margins got pressured last year because of the input costs, um, but they're starting to rebuild and the valuations are very cheap. So, so that's one of the areas where I think energy plays into, even though it's not the energy sector. Right. Okay. Very, very interesting. Oh, that, that's fascinating. Um, when when you look to sort of the cyclical story, I mean, the energy markets fit fit into that. But are, are you interested in sort of the financials? Some some of the older. I think you started off the top saying, you know, those are some of the areas that that you often think about with Europe in terms of the cyclical story. Um, do they play a factor at all? The financials. Yes, financials play a factor. Um, as I discussed earlier. Um, banks are generally not the highest quality businesses. Um, so it's not a sector that I am generally over the long term heavily overweight. So, so, you know, if you were looking at a traditional value strategy, it would be heavily overweight banks versus the, the market as a whole. Uh, and I generally won't be. However, having said that, rising interest rates are very attractive. Uh, very helpful for bank interest margins in Europe in, in particular. In particular, those companies which use five-year hedge rolling hedges, which is completely different to the way that the US banking system works. But in right. Europe, plenty mm-hmm. of companies um, benefit from rising interest rates on a lagged basis using a smooth five-year curve. And that means that you've got visibility of improving margins for a period of time. And several banks, not all, but several banks are on unusually cheap multiples, which are, you know, some of these banks are on four or five times earnings, despite having capital ratios which are above target, despite having ROEs which are in the double digits, and despite being able to use that earnings and that capital which is above target to buy shares back. And if you could be on four or five times earnings or or 0.4 or 0.5 times book, and buy shares back and grow your earnings because you'll, you've got the benefit of this five-year rolling um, uh, net interest benefit, those, that could be quite attractive. So, you know, generally, banks not a high-quality area. Right now, there are some, not all, but some really interesting opportunities and some very cheap businesses where fundamentals are improving. So, you know, we, we do have several banks. The UK is a, an attractive area in, in our view, given the rolling hedge and the cheap valuations. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that is part of the, um, the, 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 the picture. Uh, I can talk more widely about cyclicals, but that is financial specifically. Yeah. One, one thing I just wanted to sort of have you give us a little bit of a rating on a scale of sort of one to 10 in terms of you know, cheap valuations and therefore real opportunities, it appears you've been saying, you know, kind of what level of excitement are you sitting at if 10 is high? Does this feel pretty different? Yeah. So I sit here today and I feel really excited 
because, as I said, I can find plenty of businesses which are trading on similar valuations to where they did at the bottom of previous bear markets like 2003 and like the financial crisis. And yet the fundamentals are stronger, the balance sheets are strong. Um, and I find that really exciting. Um, equally, I think it's also worth being aware that there are plenty of businesses out there which are still on really expensive valuations. Okay, So it's not like everything in the stock market is, is really attractive. There are some businesses which are still on very expensive valuations. There's one business in Europe which was a, a fintech business where they missed earnings, margins came in below target, and the stock derated from about 60 earnings to about 40 times earnings. Stock was down like 40% in a day. You know, there are still names out there like that, okay? But there are some which were already on, as I said, four or five times earnings or, or for other businesses similar to trough valuation levels. The fundamentals are, are solid. You do face a, a, a risk of a recession. But, you know, with rate rises like this, there is a risk. It's not a guarantee, but there is a risk of a recession. But, but on a medium-term view, I feel really excited that you can find good businesses with valuations which are really unusually cheap. Fascinating. We'll leave it there. Matt Siddle, thank you for taking us through the thesis and, and essentially you know, how different it could look right now for many of the companies that you're investing in. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you, Pamela. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. On fidelity.ca, you can also find more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.